For they have driven me out today that I should have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, quote, go, serve other gods. See that expression, go, serve other gods? That is an expression that is almost synonymous in the Old Testament for living outside of Israel. Now, couple that with Naaman's situation. Why, can anybody think, why is this terminology used that if you live outside the boundaries of Israel, it's called, quote, serving other gods. Let's think about that. What, what is it about a pagan society that causes people embedded in it to serve other gods? Well, let's suggest that every society has common values, common basic ideas. If the society is a pagan unbelieving society, what then is the source and root of the ground ideas for that society? It's all pagan. So if you go to Philistia, as David was going in Philistia, it's the pantheon of the Philistines that just grabs people's imaginations. It sets up their value systems. It sets up their priorities. It orders their life. And most of all, it orders social etiquette. So if you're functioning inside that kind of a society, in that sense, you're serving other gods. And one of the tensions of Christians down through history is that we, we on one hand, are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, we're serving other gods because in unbelieving societies, there's just there's rules that you follow that you don't want to follow that are, it gets into this, you know, do we or don't we kind of thing. But the society itself Grounded as it is on unbelief, we are serving other, other gods, just walking around. So, the tension of separation is there in the Bible. And Paul, if we turn now to Romans chapter 12, the familiar verse, this is about the only way you can deal with it. So, if you turn to Romans chapter 12 and look on page 68 in the notes, We want to go through some ways that people have had of dealing with this. In serving other gods, um, here's the kind of a contrasting list I made up a couple of years ago when I was dealing with another text, but it kind of shows you the, what we mean the institutional design. On the left side, I don't know why it was put God's program on the left side. Um, the Word of God. Self-government, marriage, family, association, civil government, and church government. Those are the basic social structures authorized in the New Testament. No question about it, they're there. They're not accidental, social, evolutionary, developed phenomena. They're not habits that created because people thought about them. They're there because God wants them. On the right side is what we are used to calling them in, our, in a pagan, unbelieving society without biblical reference. We, we speak of citizen rights. Uh, excuse me? Whose rights? Citizen's rights. Oh. Where do these citizen rights come from? Well, the government gives it to them. Really? The government can take it away from you. Well, I'm not so sure about that. The government can take your rights away. Well, no, I think I have my rights. I mean, I'm a woman. I want to do what I want to with my body. And if I want to abort my baby, I mean, the government can't tell me about that. That's my right. Oh, you've got a right that's not given to you by the government. Oh, okay. Well, 
then where does the right come from? If I heard you right, it doesn't come from the government. And you don't believe in the Bible, so it doesn't come from God. Where does the right come from? Excuse me? See what we said? There's no foundation. It's all air. Cohabitation. I mean, you know, girls, guys, guys and guys, girls and girls. State education. Various associations and religions. There's a structural difference here. And this is what the Bible is talking about when you live in a society designed like that on the right side. In a way, you're serving other gods because you daily function in, that, in those structures. The legislation is all designed that way. So where does separation start then? Well, it doesn't start by rebelling. It doesn't start by reforming society. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, it starts in our heads. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may test out what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So where does separation begin? Not with not wearing lipstick, not with not playing cards, not with going into a monastery. Separation begins in the hardest place up here. That's where it begins. It begins in the renewing of our mind. That's where separation starts. Now, on page 68, there's three unfortunate twistings of Romans 12.2. You look at the first full paragraph on page 68, down through church history, there have been three alternative views to real separation. One is wholesale capitulation to pagan public values and agendas. Whatever society wants, hey, don't offend them. Go along with it. No problem. Another one is accommodation. This is a little more spiritual. This is Capitulation is usually unbelievers who masquerade as Christians. That's the liberal crowd. Accommodation is usually some evangelicals, usually some of our own brethren, who become deeply uneasy over this tension issue. And so they want to kind of blend in with the social environment so they reinterpret the Bible to fit it. This is why you know, all of a sudden you can't realize, we don't understand how to interpret Genesis 1. I mean, gee, that, you know, that text is tough stuff. So we accommodate by adjusting our interpretation. Okay, the next kind of person that developed down through history was the physical separation people. They went into monasteries. And did God command us to go into monasteries? great thing for evangelism. really helps out missions and evangelism to be separated from people. So those are three poor counterfeits to true biblical separation. Biblical separation is not capitulating to the public. It's not accommodating our interpretations to fit. It's not physically leaving. So it, it's, it's, you know, it starts with we have to be straight up here. And the only way we can be straight up here is to separate in our thought pattern. Then we have to trust the Lord how that's publicly expressed. And each one of us, it'll be different areas because each one of us is gifted differently. So follow through with me. If you'll look at the quote, page 68, from G. Gresham Nature. He wrote a book at the turn of the century. Actually, this is a, a sermon he gave at Princeton. 
J. Gresham Machen is one of, is one of oh, I love this one, J. Gresham Machen is one of the five original fundamentalists. Now, everybody has this Elmer Gantry idea of a fundamentalist. This guy, J. Gresham Machen, was a New Testament Greek scholar. He wrote the key textbook in Koine Greek that is used to this day to train seminarians in biblical Greek. Guy was great. He was a he bachelor all his life. He used to walk around in crummy clothes. So the absent-minded professor. Uh, he was a fellow who, uh, when Princeton started going, having problems and so on, he left. He, he walked out, went across the river, and went to Philadelphia and started Westminster Seminary, along with Cornelius Van Hill and other guys. Uh, one of the other fundamentalists was an uneducated man who was fluent in 25 different languages, Robert Dick Wilson. Um, so when you hear the word fundamentalist, you know, stupid guys, well, when you hear it, the answer to that is, well, when you can be fluent in 26, tell me about it. Um, Machen said, at a, at a, this is before he left Princeton, he gave this, this talk, instead of destroying the arts and sciences or being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with all the enthusiasm of the various humanists, but at the same time, consecrate them to the service of our God. Let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically, to make the world subject to God. We may preach. Now you say, well, why, why was Machen this way? Now, it's true. Machen tended to be post-millennial. Uh, this time in history, a lot of optimists, and we're pre-mill, so we don't think quite that way. But the, in principle, we agree with him. There's no need to avoid art, music, literature, and these other things just because the unbelievers do them. I mean, come on. These are functions that we as created in God's image can do. Why do we give credit to the non-Christian? Why do we think the non-Christian can do it better? Machen, however, in the second portion of this quote, here is where I think it comes down to a very serious issue. This is not just talking about art and music the sake of art and music. People can kiss that off and say, well, I'm not interested in art music. That doesn't bother me. But Machen had a more serious perception that if we don't engage in the academics, if we don't engage in economics, if we don't engage in the arts, here's what's going to happen. He's absolutely right. Watch the second quote. We may preach with all the fervor of reformers and yet succeed only in winning a straggler here and there, if we permit the whole collective thought that's going great, of the nation or of the world to be controlled by ideas which, by the resistless force of logic, prevent Christianity from being regarded as anything more than a harmless delusion. See the effect on evangelism and missions? Sadly, in our own time, people don't connect this. There's a disjunction going on. You have some of the church interested in the culture side, some of the church interested in evangelism and missions, and they don't see that the two are linked. Where you have a failure to capture imagination artistically, dramatically, and musically, you will have a culture that it is almost impossible to lead someone to Christ. Because the, the groups have gotten so far apart, there's just no communication. Lost. And that's what Machen is saying. He's saying that our evangelism goes down the tubes if we don't maintain an aggressive cultural expression of our faith. Where is the Christian art? Where is the Christian music? 
I mean, goodness, like yours. Where is the stuff that moves people? If we don't have that, Machen says, you can forget evangelism. You ever hear that before? New thought? Because God says that salvation concerns the whole person. And art is part of the whole person. It doesn't mean everybody has to be an artist. But it does mean the church should encourage it. It was so, thank, it was so nice that here at the chapel, you know, Dennis sits there and, you know, for 25 years he had this dream of this drama in his head. And then the Lord worked it out so he could do it. Look what happened. I mean, you had more unbelievers sitting here the night, two nights of that play than I think we've ever had in the history of the chapel. Why are they all come? How come they came for that? Because somehow they thought, didn't think, they didn't have their gospel protection stuff on. You know, it was just a drama. So we, we can sneak in here and kind of, kind of come out, you know, and we don't have to worry about it, no sweat. But we found out something different because the gospel is clearly communicated in an artistic way. Okay. Romans 12, 1 and 2 then gives the means the authorized need. It's not physical separation. It's not capitulation. It's not accommodation. But on the, on the positive side, well, then you say, well, what is it? Well, it gets back. What did, we, what did we study when we studied Solomon? Remember, I don't have the slide here tonight, but remember in Solomon's day, what began to happen? If you look back on the first chapter of these notes, you'll see a statement that said, breath, uh, death always leads to breath. And the deep relationship with the Lord that's anchored in Scripture will finally overflow. And you just can't help it, but it will begin to twist and bend and turn things in the environment. It won't mean that you change your company. It doesn't mean you're going to change the school system. It doesn't mean you're going to change whatever group you're with. But there'll be a pressure there. There'll be a presence there. There'll be a felt impress of some other standard, your transcendent loyalty will begin to be felt because now there's an expression of this. And people, what is this? What's going on here? I, I feel something different happening. You're, you just don't march quite to the same tune. And that's what Nietzsche's talking about. That's what stimulates. If any man asks a reason of the hope that is in you, be ready to give him an answer. Well, if he never asks a reason of the hope that is in you, what do you answer you're going to give? There's got to be something that sets up the question. And that's what we're talking about in separation. All right, concluding down the bottom of page 68. I've tried to summarize the Romans 12, 2 principle. Wisely separating from worldly culture while citizens of a pagan society requires great alertness, hard work, and a dedication. It requires a peculiar resource. And, I, and we're going to get into this more next time. It requires a vision of God's sovereign control over, in back of, underneath, and behind every pagan power that pushes on us. Think. What do we say were the two repercussions of the exile? One was the religions. What was the other one? The rise of what kind of literature? The rise of apocalyptic literature. First time in history that God revealed himself apocalyptically. Zechariah, Daniel, Book of Revelation, John. It's all apocalyptic. Why apocalyptic literature? He had prophets before. Why this new form? 
What is characteristic of apocalyptic literature? The final end of history. And what does apocalyptic literature always specialize in? The crushing of the world system. Rejoicing in the downfall and the triumph of God's kingdom. Why is that there? Why did this literature suddenly arise in the 6th century? Because God had to provide his sheep who would stray into pagan pastures the long-term basis, and we're going to develop that more in the, in the notes that you just got tonight. I developed that. We'll talk about it next week. There's got to be day-in, day-out endurance on a long time scale. This isn't flash-in-the-pan stuff. You never attain what Machen's talking about because art, art takes discipline, takes practice, takes time, takes effort to develop good literature, to develop it takes thought. It, it doesn't come overnight. So it requires time and time, 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 effort, 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 which means I have to endure against opposition that seems almost hopeless. I mean, think of that Jew in Psalm 137, whoever he was that wrote that song. Think of him hanging up his musical instrument. He said, I can't sing the Lord's song in this land. It's just out of place. And feeling the dejection you know, you want to praise God and you just feel good. And I live in a good. And it goes on month after month, year after year, you know, lifetime after lifetime. So God had to change the vision for his people. And that's why apocalyptic literature, all scriptures God breathed, profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, righteousness, it's complete. God has given us a complete repertoire in the word of God. Apocalyptic literature was given historically at this time period, the time period of the exile, to allow the people of God to be able to have a sustained endurance for centuries under paganism. It's the key to separation. You only remain separated if you have an energy to do it. And it's apocalyptic literature that is given by the Holy Spirit to energize a long-term program of faithful resistance against the powers of be. Why does it have this power to this long-range idea? Because if you know the last chapter, you know who's going to win the game. You may lose, you may lose, you may lose this battle, you may lose that battle, you may lose this battle, you may lose that battle, but if you know deep in your head that we are going to win, you keep on, keep on. Keep on. Why do the communists keep on? Young students slaughtered by the thousands by the Tsar. Why did they keep on when they had it? Why did not they come? Keep on. Because they were convinced that they were going to win. It's the power of long range, total victory. And it gives it's, that's what the apocalyptic literature do. Our hearts must have both an inner compass to stay undeflected by the world, and an energizing motive to stand against the relentless pressure to give in. We need assurance that God is still for us, even though the great public miracles of the kingdom era no longer occur. All right, next week we're going to take this one step further into a controversial area of separation, which we call the extreme separation. You look at your notes the next time you'll see what I mean. We're dealing next with the issue of legal separation or civil disobedience. This is a hope, thankfully, a rare occurrence. 
not part of the program. God's intention is not to overthrow government. He established government. He tells us to respect governmental authority. But, because we're in an exilic-ish era, under the modus operandi of an exile, your loyalty is not 100% now. It's not. 100% loyalty to God. It's partial loyalty to the state. And if there's a split, it should be very clear that civil disobedience is authorized. But under only certain conditions. And so that's why I want to cover that because it's always an item of controversy. And I think we need to address it. And what better place to address it than right at this point in history where you have the exilic period. Father, we thank you tonight for the scriptures. We thank you again that you do provide scriptures and that they are sufficient unto every good work that the man of God might be equipped and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So as we examine the canon of scripture, as we seek its intent to our lives and its direction for our lives, may the Holy Spirit open our hearts to areas in our lives which do not conform to this right now, that we need straightening out. The separation has to begin with us in our heads and we don't, before we talk about somebody else or talk about circumstances around us, we have to address our own hearts. So we ask, Lord, that you would examine us and see if there be any wicked way in us as individual believers. In Christ's name, amen. We have a few minutes. Um, are there any questions that you want to bring up? Comments? It, it, we're not given much latitude in Scripture, frankly. It's not a promiscuous thing, and you'll notice I'm very careful in the, in the text. It's, it's the subject of the notes coming up. So it's um, just look at your biblical model. Um, think about think about the biblical example. What examples do we have of civil disobedience in Scripture? Think about the circumstances that. Um, precipitated those. Well, the first one uh, that we have that in the Zillit period is Daniel himself. Now, if you think of all the issues that Daniel could have argued with Nebuchadnezzar on, I mean, good grief, we think we've got it bad. Um, here you have a, a bloodthirsty dictator. It's like living on the Saddam Hussein. I mean, um, Daniel, and, and look how Daniel goes about it. And look at the precipitating issue when he finally does defy to death the government. Over what issue? Pray. He is going to pray in public. And he is going to pray to the God of Israel. He is not going to pray to the state. State God. State religion. Um, the nearest thing I can think of today across the world would be Christians in Islamic State, house churches in China, where that is an issue. And you'll note in that if you look carefully at the notes, and we'll, we'll talk about this uh, next week, I don't want to steal a fire from it, right? Um, if you look at the notes, uh, you'll also see that in the cases where there is civil disobedience, the believers took their punishment. They not only dis disobeyed the law, they went to jail, they went into the prison and defied God there. I mean, defied the state there in the sense that Paul in uh, Acts uh, was whipped 
of corporal punishment. Um, he went to jail. They sang hymns. A lot of jails got wrecked in earthquakes and angelic interference as a result. But um, you don't find the believers openly revolting in a sense of um, unarming. Now, where you have a historic example of in the West, where Christians did take up arms, or in every in any fact of every case I can think of, it's always been in accordance with Romans 13. Where you have insurrections, it's usually insurrections with a duly constituted person in the government. And uh, I've used the illustration of the American Revolution here. We had a Q&A one time where in the colonies, um, they will say it's the American Revolt. It really wasn't a revolt. The colonies had, were already living under written contracts. It was Parliament that broke the contract. So the position of the American colonies were that we are simply adhering to the legal documents. Uh, the, the, the contracts stand. Mayflower Compact, that we call it the compact, it was a contract, it was a settlement company. And all of a sudden, Parliament needs more money, so they changed the contract. They said, no, no, we're not changing this contract. And so there came the, then the governors of the colonies who were duly constituted authorities uh, were the ones who, who led the revolt. So it was always this... American Revolution wasn't like the French, where they just went out and destroyed the state. See, the problem is that you can't be in a position of destroying the institution of civil authority. Because if you, in your disobedience or in your revolt, you undermine the institution God gave, it's just like undermining marriage. The institution stands. We can complain about the people that are in the institution, but it's delicate surgery. And God doesn't want us to go, whatever we do, he doesn't want the authoritative structure to be wrecked. So it has to be done very delicately. It's not, it's not just I'm just being in the government to vote. It doesn't work that way. So read the notes and we'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, Steve brought up the case which we had talked about in some of the Q&A before. Uh, probably the closest example of, of separation of powers in government is the Alabama issue. Because there you have the executives. Uh, I read the Alabama government's case. It was in the, uh, somebody sent it to me on the internet. Um, so gosh, it's about six or seven pages long. It's no, now you think from reading the newspaper, this guy's a joker, some sort of southern hillbilly boy. And boy, you read this this six or seven page brief, it's no really good hillbilly. This guy's got it down cold. I mean, he goes in, he cites president after president after president. And it's, it's scary because what the governor of Alabama is saying is that when the, that the executive legislative and the judicial powers all agree to follow the Constitution. And if the judicial power doesn't follow the Constitution, then it's up to the executive power to disobey the judicial power. And you can well imagine what kind of chaos ensues the moment that takes place. Because, for example, the police function is under the executive branch. It's not under the judicial branch. So now you have courts without any police to enforce the law. The judge is rendered powerless. So, how is that going to happen? Well, what's happened in our time is the judicial branch has assumed the position the Roman Catholic Church does in theology. The courts, the judicial branch has assumed that it is the high priest of God that alone can interpret the Constitution. But the Constitution is so screwed up and so esoteric that we have to have the 
court interpret it for us. Well, that wasn't the intent of the, of the founding fathers. The founding fathers wrote that document up here, the, up the road, so that they could take it back home and the average Joe could read it and understand what's going on. It require 18 law degrees to read it. So, so in that case, you know, you read in American history, Judge Marshall and the Supreme Supreme Court, they assume the right to interpret the Constitution. That's fine. But they are not the final interpreter. So there's some there's some constitutional stuff going on, but it's it's related to what's already gone on in the church. Um, the Catholic Church did this. Modern liberal theologians do it in their own way. The Bible is so messed up, you can't understand it. You need a scholar. Catholics said you need the Pope. Protestants say you need you need PhDs. You need scholars scholars to interpret this. Boy, when we read Colossians tonight. Who were the original listeners to that letter? PhD? Pope? No. Ordinary people like you and me. Why do you suppose he wrote it? Because he expected to be understood. You write a letter to somebody and expect it to be taken 15 different ways? Or do you, you know, writing is hard. You sit down, you write a letter to your son, your daughter, your, your parents. What are you writing? You're trying to communicate something. Do you expect that they have to go to the village priest? to get the real meaning of this letter? I wouldn't write it. I didn't have that. So, when you read the Bible, it wasn't written to be satirically interpreted. It was written for everyday people. And so was the Constitution. And there is a... You know, scholars have pointed out, this is not me, scholars have pointed out what happens in literature happens in law, what happens in law happens in theology. The three fields are all together because they all involve written material. And this is what's wrong. And the, the basis for this and what's going to happen and what's already happening. I mean, we have Mike preaching the gospel. We have other people in other churches in this town. They teach. They teach their heart out. And you have kids sitting around, adults too. Duh. Never, never penetrate. And back two years ago, one of the guys from our church went over to Beachmont Christian Camp where he's working. And he gave a quiz to Christian kids at Beachmont Camp. And he asked them to find the Trinity. 17 kids? Three came up with definition of sin. Huh? These aren't kids off the street now. These are kids that have been months and years in Bible teaching church, and they can't tell us what the Trinity is. Boy, is something wrong with them. Well, now, part of it is, you know, we don't listen, but the other part is, maybe we can't listen. Because if you've been trained all your life in school that when you read a document, it's purely arbitrary what the meaning is. And you go around the class, Mary, what do you think Shakespeare means to you? Joe, what do you think he means? Mary, what do you think he means? And there's no resolution. Obviously, you ask for interaction. I mean, every teacher does that. I'm not knocking the question. I'm just saying is that at the end of the class period, you don't know what Shakespeare means. And you haven't got the big idea here. Something's wrong. Because now you've left everybody walking out of the class like I was taught that way. I was taught you couldn't understand literature. It was just all subjective. So if it's all subjective, that's why I had a hard time when I became a Christian and started reading the Bible. Because it's my interpretation, this guy's interpretation. Hey, who's, who's got the real scooby on this stuff? Well, because I learned to read more. So that's what I'm saying about serving other gods. When you live in a society that has all these sneaky little agendas in it, and I don't mean that every unbeliever is out to get you, 
It's just that it's just part of a subliminal agenda that goes on and tinges upon us day after day after day. We're not even aware it's happening. But things that are, are precious, we learn how to interpret people's conversation. And we don't listen, we don't read. And in our day, well, I think what's gotten made it worse is that we have the television as a medium. Television is not a content-centered medium. Television is an emotional medium. It's very artsy. It's great for, for what it's designed to do, communicate, impact. But it's not designed to, to stimulate thinking. If you have two scholars on TV, the problem with it is, if you had two men, say, in a scholarly debate TV, you know what would happen? You had, and then it was really heavy, good discussion. You know what you'd find yourself doing? I want to videotape this so I can replay it. Now, what's the what's the analog to replaying a videotape when you read it? You go back to the tape and read it. See, a book is made so you can go back and redo it. Video isn't. Unless you have a videotape, and then you've lost it. It's too fast for it. That's why the video medium is a poor medium that comes in really get repetition. Yes, Oh, it's very hard. Absolutely. But, but that what Debbie said is absolutely correct. I mean, I think we all sense that. Uh, the creationist movement that we were talking about. Um, these guys have destroyed themselves professionally by aligning themselves with the creationists. I mean, it's a professional suicide because you can't get your papers published. You're not going to get any research grants. And it, you just commit suicide. And frankly, there are a lot of guys that have paid the price. Most of the creation work today, folks, is done Saturday afternoon at home on shoestring budgets because they don't get a chance to do this anyway. Debbie's absolutely right. But I think we have to go one step further. If we, if we say that that's the case, then I think we're driven back to the fact that if that really is the case, and we can't be good artists, and we can't be in science. What is that thinking of nature? What is that saying about our evangelism? I think it's also, if that's the case, I think what our, our evangelism is completely truncated today. And I think when we see, we can say, well, you can still preach the gospel. Yeah, you can preach it, but is it really being understood as the gospel? Or is our gospel coming through as words that are psychologically reinterpreted as, I'll have peace of mind if I accept Jesus. Or the gospel is preached, but it's being received by other ears that say, oh, my problems will go away if I become a Christian. Well, neither of those interpretations of the gospel. I'm not necessarily going to have peace of mind if I pay attention to this message because I might be convicted of my sin. I might have a lot of problems in my relationship with the God of the universe. And it's going to be kind of messy for a while. So maybe I don't want to hear that. So I think Debbie is right in that the, uh, the artists, the gap between the believing culture and unbelieving culture is enormous in our time. And I think the only way to bridge it Aside from here and there, where you can you, you find yourself able to communicate with the person here and the person there, and the people that you do communicate with that way are generally people that are operating close to our position. We just don't know it. 
but for their far out times. I think that the way and the tactic that God uses, and I think Francis Schaeffer said this back 25 years ago, we have to rethink our tactic and stop trying the direct approach. It's not going to work. We're going to have to try an end run and an indirect approach, whereby we pull the carpet out from under their assumptions. Until we do that, they rest absolutely in the delusion that they have an impenetrable defense against God and the church. So we have to figure out ways of pulling the carpet out. Yeah. Yes, it is. And uh, uh, we, if you've ever had the experience of talking to an Indian Indian who is a convinced Hindu, I don't think any. Hopefully, you never have to worry about it. But if you ever get a chance to talk to one of these people, who really knows is Hinduism. You talk about sliding on grease. I mean, everything you say gets sucked through a grid and it comes out exactly the opposite in his head from what you're saying because of this mysticism. And what Wade has, has mentioned is that this is what's increasingly happening. I, I get this from uh, some campus crusade people that are working on university campuses. We know a lady that is a tremendous advantage. But it takes her weeks, months, to penetrate with just a few girls. Because what happened, she says, this is at University of Texas, um, what's happening, she says, is that these girls all come and, and that it's like water off a duck's back because they relativize it out. Well, that's good for you. And she had a guy give an example who came and gave his testimony about how he's able to live with AIDS. He got AIDS not through his own fault, he got it through a blood transfusion back when before the blood bank started getting you know, screened better. So he picked up uh, AIDS. So now here he is dying. And he could be very bitter against this. It wasn't his fault, quote, unquote, so on and so forth. And he became a Christian, and he, he gives his testimony. So here he is. He held a hundred kids sitting in this room, and he holds his spellbound because he's facing death. Now, you know, when you're 16, 17, nobody thinks of death. I mean, you're, you're immortal until at least you're 45. So, the point is that in that era of life, it doesn't make much sense. But yet, when they were seeing one of them, she starts reading to herself. And she said, you should see what they put on here. The gist of 90% of the comments was, man, 